Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How's everyone doing today? If you're visiting, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see the room full of people as far as social distancing allows. Uh, So, a little about my week. Uh, So, I woke up on Friday. It's my day off. Uh, Strolled out into the deck to look at the mountains, all those things that I do now. I live in Colorado with you guys. Only to hear the sound of running water. Now, my instant reaction was, wait, you're not in England anymore. It doesn't rain here. I actually asked some guys. I went disc golfing with, with Aaron and a couple of guys. And I said, do you guys miss rain? just doesn't seem to do that anymore. Uh, and so having lived in, in a delightful um, sort of environment where I was in a parsonage, and if there was ever a problem, I just called somebody else, uh, my immediate reaction to this pouring water was, well, I need to call someone. And then I realized I was now the person that I would call. Um, which wasn't good news. So I spent the next 45 minutes becoming an expert on what I am now told are called pressure release valves. Um, And impressively, I fixed this myself for $4. (laughs) Assuming it's not pouring with water again now at home. uh, Now, here's the thing, if there's any plumbers here, I'm sorry I didn't send any business your way, but I just figured, you know, this was was on me. Uh, So that was what my week started like, or my week ended like. We're not talking about that. Um, Yeah, I agree. I love having kids in the service. So fun. Uh, We're going to jump into John chapter 2. So if you have a text, feel free to open it. It's not going to come up on the screen to start with. We'll go through it bit by bit uh, a little later on. But right now, I'm just going to read it for you. So we started in this book, John, last week. Uh, We're going to do the first four chapters. We're not going to go completely verse by verse. So those of you that love that verse by verse, minute detail thing, We have the the daily things for those. Uh, It would be very difficult to get through every single verse over five weeks. So we're going to jump down from partway through chapter one, and we're going to start in on chapter two. If you are completely new to church, maybe you're watching a video someone sent you, maybe you turned up because you just turned up. John is one of four stories of Jesus' life. Uh, There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell it in slightly different ways. And John is this this one that goes into some of these rich details that I just love dropping in on. So here here we go. Before we run into it, let's, let's pray. God, we believe as followers of Jesus that you breathed on this book and it came alive. God, we're asking now, would you breathe into us? Make us alive in new ways. Pull things out of us that are messy, ugly. Replace them with good. We thank you that in Jesus, all things are made new. And we're excited to see newness and life in this text. Amen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Mother, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they may be filled, so they are filled to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The Bible asks us to take seriously this idea that Jesus took water and he turned it into wine. And that is the cheapest parlor trick you will ever see in church. (laughs) My daughter said to me, like, what if it doesn't work? (laughs) That's going to be really embarrassing for you, isn't it? (laughs) I said, well, it could be embarrassing anyway. Jesus took water and he turned it into wine. Now, do not drink this. Uh, Just a warning to you. No one come up here and try and grab an early morning glass of wine. But the reaction there of like, whoa, I need to figure that out, is exactly the reaction of the first followers of Jesus, exactly the reaction of the wedding guests, at least the ones that knew. There's this sense of like, where did that come from? The, the, The book John, the second chapter, asks us to take seriously the idea that the divine will interfere in the normal pattern of things. The divine will interfere into the normal pattern of things. If you want to write something like that down, that is maybe a good working... I don't know if this is working. Maybe I uh, have to turn it on or something like that. I'm going to slick it, slickly move it. There we go. The divine entering into the world to actively work around or against the laws that govern our reality. The truth is when the wine is gone the wine is gone. And yet with Jesus present, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. There's there's an argument that you can make that this, other than the resurrection, is the greatest miracle that Jesus will perform. Every other miracle is based around, and Jesus became very well known as a miracle worker, every other miracle is based around a couple of things. It's about taking something that has become warped and damaged and repairing it. Someone goes lame, and Jesus miraculously makes that limb work again. Someone was born blind. The the function of growing in the womb didn't happen as it should have done. And Jesus kind of starts that process again and makes it work. But this one, this is a little different, right? For years, people, even wise theologians, have maybe read this miracle a little bit wrong. A famous writer, a kind of rock star theologian from the 4th and 5th century, Augustine, he said, all Jesus does here is speed up the natural process. But does he? Doesn't have grapes? doesn't have anything, just has water. And the Bible asks us to take seriously that water didn't just become wine, it became the best wine. So we're going to track through this series, as I sort of outlined for you last week, we're calling it, uh, Did You See That? The idea is that sometimes there's the story, and then sometimes there's the thing behind the story, and then sometimes there's the thing behind the thing behind the story, unless we know what we're looking for, unless we're aware of some of the context, unless we're aware of some of the history, we might be just missing huge chunks of what's actually happening. This is this idea that sometimes you blink, and sometimes you missed it. 
So we're going to spend this time looking sort of deep into these things. This is maybe a little illustration that helps you understand this. This is Grant Akats. He's one of the best chefs in the world. He appeared on the scene in 2003, and his cooking was just revolutionary. He opened a restaurant in Alinea where for a mere $280, you can sit down to 22 courses, each paired with wine. But this guy, in, in his style, was just revolutionary. And what he said he wanted to do was this. He wanted to turn food into a, a form of theater. So he wanted you to eat and to not be aware of what was going on around you until the thing sort of jumped up in front of you. So an example of how this works is this. You'll sit down and a table host will bring you to your seat and as you're sitting there, a basket of fruits and different foods will lower from the ceiling. And then someone will bring out a piece of fire. They'll place a fire on the table, cooking and burning in front of you. And you'll take these bits of fruits, like marshmallows and things, and you'll take them and you'll cook them over the fire for yourself, and you're absorbed in this theater and these different tastes and what's going on around you. And then finally, a table host will come over and they'll take away the fire when you're finished with this course, place it on the table next to you, and break it apart. And inside this fire is a chicken thigh wrapped in foil, and he's been cooking in front of you the entire time, and you've been completely unaware of it. I would suggest that there's times when we read specifically John, but also other New Testament writers, other Old Testament writers, that these writers, they're doing something under the surface that we're not even aware of. They're, to take that analogy, they're cooking in front of us, and we don't even know it's happening. And then there's the moment where the thing comes to life, it jumps out, and we're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. That's the thing. Those aha moments are what make the New Testament come alive. It's like, oh, that was the thing all along. And so as we go through this book, on John, this book, John, I'm hoping you see those all the time. I'm hoping they jump out to you. And as you would expect, this one is no different. So here we go. Let's go back to the text. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So weddings in the first century BC, AD were a huge deal. Seven days of feasting and celebration over a wedding. A wedding was a massive deal. And Jesus and his followers have gone a pretty good distance to this wedding. Sometimes we forget that this is a context where there's no cars, very few people have beasts of burden or anything like that. So they have been hanging out somewhere maybe in this sort of lakey region on the, the right that's called the Sea of Galilee, or maybe somewhere very down at the south. And this is probably where Cana is. So they've walked this seven miles to this celebration. Man, I would have to really like someone to walk seven miles. But they, you guys are Coloradans, you're hikers, you'd walk anywhere for, you know, you, you, seven miles, seven hours is nothing to you guys. Uh, 24 kilometers, I'm gonna have to convert that for you guys because of course you don't do kilometers over here. Uh, so around 15, 16 miles. And so they've made this huge journey across to this wedding. And you expected something when you turned up to a wedding. This was so ingrained in the culture of the day that like, when you went to a wedding, it was like, ah, oh, I'm expecting something good. And then this line gets thrown in, which to us, in our 21st century mindset, doesn't seem that big a deal. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I've been to weddings. Weddings run out of wine all the time. 
It's not reasonable, surely, to keep giving people endless supplies of wine, especially if you're paying for it as the host. Why would you expect that at all? It just seems unreasonable. But to a first century AD person, to run out of wine was the end of joy. It meant that the, every part of the wedding that had been worth celebrating up till now, that sort of like, that celebration that had been building every single bit of energy was now sucked from the building. A wedding that ended up with no wine would be remembered forever as the wedding that ended up with no wine. Imagine yourself in that situation. Imagine how a couple would feel to be that couple that were talked about, that were laughed about all over town. This wasn't a, an environment where there were all these different activities going on. Social events were the activities of the day. They were the football games of the day. They were the baseball games of the day. And to end up with no wine meant that this would be the thing that was talked about. This isn't just a throwaway statement, oh, they've run out of wine. This is a disaster. Think about that in our terms. I've been at a couple of weddings where I've sort of seen almost impending disaster. I've actually been involved in impending disaster as well. My brother's wedding a couple of years ago. I was the best man. I got to give a speech and all those kind of things. And as we're sitting eating, I'm just not feeling good. And I start to look at the people around me. Laura is sat next to me, and, and, and I don't want to say anything because, you know, it's my brother's wedding. I'm like, is it, is it just me, or is the food here not good? Have they done a really bad job with the catering? And my wife looked at me, and she's like, no, the food's wonderful. And that was the moment where I knew something could be a problem. Um, and so I sort of managed to stumble through the best man speech and all those kind of things, uh, and we got that part done. Uh, and then... A guy came over to me. I'd made friends with him over the weekend, and he knew I was a pastor, and he heard me give the address at the wedding. And he said to me, do you know what? I, uh, I'd love to talk to you about just spiritual stuff. I've just got this feeling that there's something in the world, and I'd love to kind of just get down and figure out what it was. And as a pastor, that's like gold. Like, how often does that happen? No one ever asks us that question. <laughs> they, just, they just don't. And so it's like, no, I'd really love to get down to these deep details. I'm thinking about who Jesus is and all these kind of things. And in that moment, something like there starts to move. And I just looked at him. I said, Glenn, I would love to have this conversation with you another time. And I just darted as quick as I could to the bathroom and the normal order of things followed, you know, talking on the big white phone or whatever we call that these days. And, and this just was so close to being that disastrous moment. That could have been the speech. That could have been like half an hour, 20 minutes earlier. Unfortunately, by some grace or something in the universe, I, I got through it okay. But we all know those, those, those moments in weddings that, that are truly terrible. The, maybe the pinnacle is the one where the, the priest or pastor will say, if anyone has any objection to this ceremony, raise your hand or forever hold your peace. And every time, even if I'm not really involved, I have this moment of like, please... Nobody put your hand up. Just let's just let it go. They, we understand what social embarrassment means. We understand what the worst thing that can happen at a wedding is. And there's probably a load of others that you've either seen or imagined or all those different things. This, for someone in the first century AD, this was it. This was as bad as it could get. They have no more wine. 
Now, to, to get into some of the weeds of this a second, like, that maybe causes some tension for us. All sorts of different backgrounds here. Some of you have been in church since like year dot, since you can remember. Some of you are fairly new to church. In the Western church, we have a pretty uncomfortable relationship with wine, alcohol, all those different things. There's a tension there, right? And tension's not bad. Tension is actually a really great place for us to learn. Jewish people managed this tension really well. They were really comfortable with the idea that wine had a purpose, but it wasn't like the end goal. They were okay with these two concepts sort of running together. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. And then also the second concept from a different part of the Old Testament. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens human hearts. Two completely different ideas, right? Woe to this person. And then at the same time, wine gladdens human's hearts. The rabbis had this saying, uh, drunkenness is a disgrace, but without wine, there is no joy. So for all of us in this room, all over the place, there's, there's different reactions maybe, right? Some of us are like, ah, I'm just not comfortable. I know someone who's been through addiction. We have this Celebrate Recovery program that we absolutely love, and, and I'm so excited that South is involved in that. And we recognize that there's this real sense that alcohol is dangerous when it's out of control, that it can be this huge problem. And yet, for thousands of years, people have had this idea that wine brings joy as well. Uh, this incredible uh, photo photographer from Brazil, uh, Marco Alberti, decided to take pictures of the weight of life on his friends. So he would drag them in after work and say, I want to take a picture of you uh, and just see how the day has affected you. And then I want to give you a glass of wine. And I want to have you drink it. And then I want to take another picture. And just for that illustrated thing, just, just look. And this isn't me saying you should go out and drink wine. This is me, isn't me saying if you have a problem, you should go drink it, or any of those things. But just look at the difference. <laughs> These are people that come in from their day and feel weight. And for whatever reason, the next picture casts a completely different expression. So this is the tension we're talking about, right? There is a genuine sense that wine brings joy, that, that sitting and enjoying a glass with friends has a joyfulness to it, and yet it is also on the other side this dangerous thing. And, and we can't avoid that tension. We embrace it and accept it. For some reason at this wedding, the fact that they had run out of wine was a disaster. And we are going to watch as Jesus not only produces wine, but he produces lots and lots of wine. When you read the text, what we'll see in a second is that Jesus will take these huge ceremonial pots. It says that there are about 30 gallons each, and he'll turn these into the best wine. 30 gallons is about the amount of water that you will put into a bath to take a bath. And Jesus produces eight of them. In our modern-day understanding of wine bottles, that's 800 bottles of the finest wine you could imagine. That causes me some tension. Jesus gives these guests that have been drinking for, seven, for three days and says, here's another 800 bottles. <laughs> I don't know that I actually know what to do with that. And we'll get there in a second. But there's this moment where it looks like the miracle won't happen at all. There's this moment where Jesus uh, 
mother will come to him and he'll say, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. People have struggled with the way that Jesus addresses his mother there. It's, it's not particularly a nice way of talking to her. It's not the very English mummy. It's not dear woman. It's not my, my lovely mother. It's, it's woman. Why, why, are you, why are you telling me what to do? So there's a thing going on here under the surface that this is what's called a literally literary topos. So he's, it's this, he's setting something up. In lots of Jewish stories, there was this idea that, w- that a man would grow up and he would separate himself some, from his mother's influence. So this is what John is doing here. He's talking about this moment where Jesus has become his own man. He's now 30. He's started his own ministry. And now she's come to him and said, you can fix this situation. My question there is, like, is, is what has she seen? What has she seen in him over those years that he's grown up that says this situation that's a disaster, you can do something about it? Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that there's these promises that she's heard. When he was a little boy, he would go to the temple and people would say, oh, this child is going to be the the savior of Israel. He's going to do all these incredible things. But, But she must have seen something that says this is a problem that he can fix. And for a moment, this thing just hovers with this tension. She's made a request, and he on the surface has said, not ready to do anything. Not ready to step out. The thing is coming, but I'm not ready right now. It's this hovering moment of like, ah, will the thing happen at all? And she just with this beautiful confidence, I think he's on the slide before, she just says to the servants, do whatever, do whatever he tells you. Somewhere there's this maternal instinct that says, it's going to be fine. He's not going to leave them hanging. It's going to be okay. And then we see the miracle. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Again, what he's not saying there is that everybody there was wasted. Uh, he's not saying that at all. Like, and, and again, they're comfortable with this tension. Wine is to be celebrated Drunkenness at a wedding would have been a disgrace. What he means is that after three days of drinking different types of wine, you just kind of like, I don't even know what wine tastes like anymore. It just has this just standard wine flavor. So the best wine would come first when people still had what they would call a discerning palate, and then slowly they would bring out the cheaper stuff. And then this is all flipped with Jesus. He's created this miracle. This wedding is now going to be known as the wedding where in this incredible display of generosity, after three days of giving wine, the host said, actually, I've got 800 bottles that are even better. In a society that was built on like reciprocal giving, every other person holding a wedding would be terrified to hold a wedding now. What am I going to have to produce to keep up with the guy that produced 800 bottles out of nowhere when we had this moment that we thought the wine was gone? He said, suddenly, no, I have more to give you. This wedding, instead of going down in history as a disaster, will go down as, in history as the wedding that no other wedding could ever compare to. And that 
maybe leads us into what's really going on here. Because I don't think this story is really just about wine at all. Again, they're very comfortable with attention. Wine has good points and bad points. But Jesus didn't do this just for the wine. There's this whole other story, this undercurrent, that I want us to pick out for a second. So here we go. Back in the chapter that we looked at last week, John chapter 1, we talked about how John has this incredible nerve to take Jesus and to place him in, John, in, in Genesis chapter 1. He talks about Jesus in the same way that Genesis chapter 1 will talk about God who created the earth. He puts Jesus right there at the beginning, and, and that would have been a tension for Jewish people. And then John will land us in another tension as well. Because now he's going to compare Jesus to this figure Moses that looms in their past as, as the guy that delivered or God used to deliver their nation. And for the rest of John chapter 1, that's what John does. He starts to talk about this idea, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The whole of John will take Moses and Jesus and constantly compare them with this constant theme over and over again. Moses was fine. In actual fact, he was incredible. He was good. But Jesus is something different. To give you a sense of the tension for a Jewish people, imagine if I had arrived here last week and stood on stage after the worship and said something like this. You guys have spent the last like 40-something years as a community worshiping Jesus. I've got a better idea. Now it's going to be about me. You're just going to spend the next however many years worshiping me instead. I'm going to take Jesus out of the center, central focus. I'm going to put myself there. This is at its core what this chapter is doing. It's saying we have talked about Moses and how God has used him as the prophet, the guy for centuries. And now you're going to take Moses out and say, no, no, no. We're going to do that. Maybe me is a bad example because I'm so human. Maybe I put Billy Graham in there for you, Corey Evangelicals or something like that. There's that, there's that sense of like, what, what do you mean you're going to take Moses out and put yourself in that place? And I would suggest to you that all that we're going to see through John is this constant reflection of like, well, Moses was fine, but now there's this new thing that's happening. This Jesus story goes beyond all of that. This story about turning water into wine, there's only one thing in the, the whole of the Old Testament, New Testament that compares to it at all. As this moment where the children of Israel, this group of Jewish people, leave Egypt. They've been in captivity for hundreds of years. And then through the series of miracles, the Pharaoh will decide to let them go. And this is one of those miracles. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Moses takes water, and he turns it into blood. 
And God incredibly uses this narrative to take these children of Israel out of Egypt and they leave as this group and all these other people follow them. It's called an Erev Rav in, in Hebrew. It's like this mixed up, messy multitude of people. It's like they said to all the outsiders, hey, if you want to leave too, just come with us. And suddenly this group that was about 600,000 maybe suddenly becomes something more like a couple of million and they just wander out into the desert and it is miraculous. It is this world-changing event. And then along comes Jesus. And he says, I'm going to turn water into wine. And then everyone reading retrospectively would read it in the light of, oh yeah, but what happened at Easter? At Easter, he sat around with his, his earliest followers and he handed them a cup and he said, this wine, what does it represent? This represents my blood. And this isn't just about deliverance from Egypt. It's about deliverance from everything. Think about those songs that we tapped into earlier. Those songs that talked about the idea of the defeat of death, that death no longer has a hold on me. This is what Jesus is beginning to do now. His hour may not yet have come. He may not be ready for that final thing, that final thing that says that death is over. But this is like a hint of it. This is like the thing is coming. Every single thing that Jesus is doing here isn't about wine at a wedding. It isn't about whether wine is good or bad. This thing here is about a new kingdom that is on the doorstep. The thing is about to happen. And Jesus, in this incredible way, kind of like signals, just keep waiting, just keep waiting. This is going to change everything. This is like a, a classic messianic promise text from back in the Old Testament. Think about this in light of turning water into wine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Jesus is hinting that the thing is coming is the defeat of death. Death will be done with for good. This isn't about getting out of Egypt. This is about changing everything that we know about the way the world works. And if you're unfamiliar with this Jesus story, this, this is what you're invited into. Death doesn't have to have a hold anymore. This new kingdom is come. Jesus chose death as his weapon to defeat death. Isn't that the bizarrest story you could conjure up? There is a new kingdom coming. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is this moment where they're like, oh, we're not just following the rabbi that we talked about last week. Last week, for those of you that are here, we talked about so much of what Jesus did is just common rabbi stuff. He grabs a group of followers and says, spend some time with me, and eventually you'll go and be rabbis yourself. And suddenly they're like, wait, there's something bigger here. This is this idea, this is this new kingdom coming. And so a question that occurs to me is this, what, what is a kingdom? And this is where we'll land a couple of questions for you. I always feel that there's this tension as an English person, I feel like I really understand kingdoms really well. And I feel like living amongst you guys, you guys kind of hate them. Um, so here is Her Majesty the Queen. I did see the other day, just as an interesting note, that Meghan Markle, who is married to Prince Harry, for those of you that are unfamiliar with royalty and stuff like that, uh, was, says she would seriously like to run for president one day. And, and you may feel all different sort of things about that, and that's fine. But 
I would say that would be the greatest long game in the world by King George III back hundreds of years. It's like, do you know what? Generations down, one of our guys will marry one of your guys and everything will go back to the way it was. The revolution is over, people. Um, impressive 4D chess. Uh, by King George III there. But this is what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. Uh, on the surface, it's about rulership. It's about ownership. And because the word kingdom has become problematic, people have started to sketch out some other words that we might use instead of kingdom. Because we don't necessarily connect, especially in very strongly democratic nations, with this idea of what is a kingdom. So another word that people have used is things like the ecosystem of God. Well, one I love is the influence of God. The idea of the kingdom coming is that one day God's influence will be over everything. Now, on some big spatial level, that is always the, or already the case. If God can turn water into wine, if he can break the norms, then it already is everywhere. But it seems like right now he chooses not to make that the case. That there's this idea that one day the kingdom will come and it will, its reign will be over everything. And all the things that we look at in the world and say, oh, it shouldn't be that way, will be reversed. There will be enough food for everybody. We won't have a billion people that are suffering from food shortages every day in this world. There will be enough water. We won't have 700 million people that can't get clean drinking water in the world today. We won't see all these things about the world that we look at and say, that isn't how God would have it be. There's this promise that one day that will be. Jesus talked about it as something that was coming then. And even post-death, post-resurrection, isn't there still that sense for us that like, oh, we're not there yet. When I think about the kingdom, I think about this. For those of you that have, have traveled much, this is uh, the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. It was designed by an artist called Gaudi. It's still not finished centuries after he began it. And you look at this building and you're like, oh, this thing is stunning. It is a thing of beauty. It is a work of art. And when it's captured with the skyline and a rainbow behind it, it just adds to it. When the sun hits it, this may be one of the most beautiful buildings created. And then yet there's ways when you get up close and you see what it's supposed to look like that you're like, oh, but it's not finished. It's clearly not done yet. Isn't that what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom? We see this thing that Jesus has done and he has begun. And it is beautiful and it is incredible. And yet for every single one of us, there's ways that we're like, oh, it's not done yet. There's something more to happen. This world isn't the kingdom yet. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And it seems like a slow kingdom coming. And yet the promise of the water into wine is the same as the promise of death to resurrection that says the kingdom will come. It is an inevitability. It won't be stopped. When Jesus was asked to talk about that, he said, oh, the gates of hell, the, the biggest defensive structure you can imagine, not stopping it. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. It is an inevitability. The kingdom will come. But now we wait and we wait and we wait. But then there's a question that I would love to leave us with in amongst our waiting. Because I think the idea of the kingdom lands best when we start to talk about, but what is your kingdom? 
And what a self is our kingdom. You see, this kingdom really won't accept any other kingdom having its own sort of sense of influence authority. It asks that every other kingdom, every other sphere of influence is brought under this kingdom. And that's what I think each of us does when we decide to follow Jesus. We say that we long to bring our kingdom under your influence. We long to bring our own personal thing under what you're doing, Jesus. And so my question for each of us, and for us as a community, is what happens to our kingdom now? You have an influence. The smallest child here has an influence. It has, he has a group of friends. He's building those relationships. They have influence over you in different ways. And they're asked to use that influence. You guys, you kids aged 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're asked to bring that influence under the kingdom. That means that how you treat someone matters and you get to choose whether in your own small world of influence you continue to build towards this kingdom and you continue to structure your life in a way that this kingdom would dream of. When you employ someone and you get to design what their life looks like, you get to bring your realm of influence into this kingdom. When we as a church community start to think about how we engage in mission, how we engage in outreach, we get to think about how we are building the kingdom. And there's so many ways for us to dream there. This is an organization I got to work with over the last five years. It was started by a lady who went out to Haiti with a very small realm of influence. She didn't know any French. She didn't know any Haitians, and she wanted to adopt a child. And so she went, and they told her, well, you can, but in two years' time. And so she decided this. She decided, well, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here in Haiti and just decide to do whatever I can. I'm going to live with this child. I'm going to adopt them now. And I can't leave the country. That's fine. And so she began to work. And she started to see that one of the things that Haitians needed more than anything was they needed jobs. So many people in Haiti are unemployed. The theory is if you can create a job for one Haitian person, you're probably supporting 10 other Haitians. And especially there is a problem that for guys, there's a culture that says, if I can't get a job, I'm just going to stay home and I'm going to drink and do nothing. And so for all these women all over Haiti, there's this, this tension of being the breadwinners and yet also being the primary care for, for their kids and for the home. And so what Shelley did is this. She said, you know what? If I can create jobs for women, I'm going to change part of Haiti. So she started to create this environment where women could come and they could work and there was daycare provided for the kid. And she now, this woman who walked into Haiti with no influence whatsoever, whose realm was smaller than you can imagine, she now employs 700 Haitian women who are probably employing 7, 000, or supporting 7,000 other Haitians. This is what using your influence for the kingdom looks like. It doesn't matter if you feel like it's small. It doesn't matter if South is at the moment an insignificant church in the middle of a city in the middle of America. We have this ability to influence all over the world because God takes small things and he makes them big. He takes things like turning water into a wine at a wedding and says this is a metaphor for changing everything about the way the world works. This story isn't about water into wine. It's about life change. And what happens when we as a group of people take our influence and we use it everywhere around us? 
And this kingdom, incredibly, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. This kingdom comes to people who don't deserve it, who sometimes don't even know that it happened. There's no evidence in this story that we just read that this couple ever knew that there was a problem, ever knew what Jesus did for them, ever knew that a miracle took place. Suddenly there is wine when there was no wine. But they maybe never knew and never knew how to thank. This kingdom comes free of charge, no strings attached on the house. It comes with tension because sometimes it comes to people that we feel don't deserve it. And it skips over people that we feel do deserve it. And yet this kingdom one day will cover everything. And that is an inevitability. It's just a matter of time. But as we as a group of people wait, the question to leave you with this week is, what does your kingdom look like? What does your influence look like? Will you allow God to transform your heart and to begin to build his kingdom here by surrendering your own kingdom to him? I'd like to invite you to stand with me for just a second. We're going to close worshiping together again. God, each of us has influence. And yet I'm aware that for some of us, right now we feel maybe like that couple. Our influence, our specific area feels like this small thing where the wine is all gone. The joy is disappearing. It's vacuum sucked out. It doesn't feel like we're flourishing right now. God, would you bring joy and grace into our hearts in this moment as we worship together? Would you remind us that we're going to be okay? Would you remind us that your kingdom promise that starts with this silly little thing of turning water into wine? speaks to a way bigger thing. That you've changed everything about the way the world works. For those amongst us that are still figuring out, what is this faith thing? Who is Jesus? Would you become real to them in this moment? Would this big space become just oh so small? And would they know that the creator of the universe cares about them? For whatever we have in our lives that needs transforming, in whatever ways that feels impossible, God, may we see that with you nothing is impossible. For those amongst us that are sick, that come in limping, Would you bring new health and would you bring courage to deal with whatever is being dealt with? God, this world doesn't look like your kingdom all the time right now, but we see your kingdom as this beautiful thing. We choose to surrender our kingdoms to your big kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship app. Thanks for listening today, South Family, and have a great rest of your day.